today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Please join me in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, merciful and loving Father, Lord, we pray that you would still our hearts, that you would still our minds. Pray that by your spirit you would enable us to bow before your throne and to to focus all of our attention, all of our energies upon you, Lord God, upon the glory of your Son, upon your word. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would work through your word, not just this text, but as we have and continue to walk through this book, 1 Corinthians. Lord, we pray that you would make us into the kind of church that brings you great glory and honor and praise that is a delight to you. We pray, Lord God, that you would enable us to heed the instructions and the warnings from the Apostle Paul in our own lives individually, within our families, within our homes, but above all, within the church. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the, uh, in the book of 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, whom he has left in Ephesus to shepherd the church there in Ephesus, Paul plants it, he installs Timothy as the first elder. Uh, obviously, we know by Acts chapter 20, there are additional elders. But he writes this letter to Timothy in order to give him instructions on how to shepherd a church. Because, you know, this was a new concept in the first century world. Timothy was half Jewish, so he was familiar with the synagogues. But in terms of the New Testament church, the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant church, you know, Timothy needed guidance. What what does this look like? 
And one of the things that he tells Timothy in that book in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. When we think of that word, contentment, we, um, at least for myself, maybe you can relate, when I hear that word, I, I tend to immediately think of material things, material possessions, right? Be content with what you have. Be content with your possessions. Be content with your home. You know, secondly, I may think of relationships, and some of you may think in those terms as well. You know, be content with your marriage. Be content with your children. Be content with your church. Be content with your parents. And all of those things certainly would be Um, correct. But I think Paul meant something more than that. Because it is possible to be discontent with our spiritual possessions. When that happens, we have taken the first step in the wrong direction. Because the first sin was driven by discontentedness, was it not? Adam and Eve lived in a perfect environment. They had everything they could ever want. They had a perfect relationship with each other. They had a perfect relationship with God. And yet Satan convinced them that God was keeping something from you. There is more. This isn't all there is. You could have more than what you have now. God simply doesn't want you to have it. God doesn't really want you to be happy. He knows that there is something more beyond what you have here, what you see and feel and experience, and that is why he has said, do not eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do, you will become like God. Ah, see, there it is. God feels threatened. He doesn't want you to be like him. He has commanded you not to eat of this tree. And so, Adam and Eve gave in to that lie, that God was withholding something good from them, that it made no sense to obey the word of God, why can't we eat of that tree? What is God hiding? What does he not want us to have? What is he keeping back from me? In their mind, At that critical and horrific moment in history, they thought to themselves, this doesn't make sense. God's word doesn't make sense. And so we're going to do things our way. We're going to do what we think is best. We're going to do what we think makes sense. And thus, in following their wisdom and the wisdom of the serpent, Tragically, they exchanged what they had 
God's wisdom and God's blessings, they exchanged what they had for something less. And they made things worse. They made things so much worse. Sadly, Christians continue to commit the same sin over and over and over again. Human beings are a sad lot because we are such slow learners. As we deal with conflict, for example, I'll give you a few illustrations that came to mind as I was studying this text. You know, Matthew 18 says that if your brother or sister sins, you should go to them and speak to them privately one-on-one. And if they've heard you, if they hear you, wonderful. You've won your brother. It's all good. Yet so oftentimes Christians hear that or they read that and they think to themselves, well, that doesn't make sense. That can't be right. Because, you see, I'm, I'm a very humble person. And I could be wrong about their sin. I could be wrong about what I'm thinking. So I need another opinion. So I'm going to go talk to somebody else and see what they think. Do you think I should address this person? And the person says, yes, you should. If what you're saying is true, you definitely need to talk to that individual. Hmm. I don't really like that idea, see, because I'm kind of non-confrontational. So, again, I like to follow the Bible. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 22, that there is wisdom found in a multitude of counsel. So we'll go with best of three. Let me go talk to someone else. Should I talk to this person about what I think they have done? Yes, you should. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure I like that answer either. Let's do best of five. So you talk to a third person. The third person says, nah, let it go. You talk to the fourth person. The fourth person says, nah, let it go. You talk to the fifth person. The fifth person says, nah, let it go. See, there you go. I followed the Bible. Wisdom is found in a multitude of counsel. Three out of five says, I ought to just ignore it, and so I will. Never mind the fact that you've just informed everybody in the church about that person's sinful behavior, except for that individual. And in the process, you end up exchanging what you had, the wisdom and the blessing and the favor of God for something less. Disunity. Disharmony. And you've made matters worse. I see this in marriage all the time. When I've done marriage counseling with people, I can't tell you how many times husbands will come to me. I take them to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and following, and I remind them that they are commanded to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Which means you are to always strive to be kind, patient, 
loving, forgiving, merciful, understanding. To which oftentimes the response that I get is, well, that can't be right. You don't know my wife. (laughs) My life is a constant replaying of Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. I will love my wife in that way when she starts behaving the way I want her to behave. But is that how Christ loves his church? Then I remind them, if you're a Christian, you're the bride of Christ. And how often does the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, consistently sin against Christ over and over and over again? How often do we live in blatant disrebellion or rebellion and disrespect and disregard for the commands of Christ, our King, our Lord, our husband? And yet, he is ever gracious, ever kind, ever loving, ever understanding. But to many men, that doesn't make sense. I'm going to listen to what my buddies are telling me at work about how I should deal with this. And in the end, they exchange what they have, the wisdom and the blessings of God for something less, and they make things worse. Or wives who struggle with their husband, you take them to Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your husbands in all things. Well, that can't be right. All, surely that's a typo. To which oftentimes a conversation goes something like this. Look, besides that, I don't have a problem with submitting to my husband. I fully believe in submission to my husband, and I do it all the time. When he's right. In all of these instances, in all of these instances and more, Christians will often follow the wisdom of the world. This is what the world says. This is what the serpent says. Don't believe God's word. He's keeping something back from you. It doesn't make sense. Use your own judgment. So oftentimes we follow worldly wisdom. We follow the wisdom of the serpent. And in doing so, we exchange what we have for something less. Just like Adam and Eve. And we make things worse. This is what Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to understand. Throughout this text, he is trying to get them to understand throughout this book, stop listening to the philosophy of the world. Stop listening to the wisdom of the world and simply follow what God has said. And all of the disunity and the disharmony that exists in the church in Corinth will be remedied. 
but they are struggling to wrap their mind around that. And so Paul continues his argument in verse 18. And by the way, let me just point out to you that verse 18, or this passage, rather, verses 18 down to uh, 23, this passage breaks down into uh, three points, really. There are two assertions that Paul is going to make, and then he'll end with a conclusion based on those two assertions. The conclusion is in verses 22, or 21, rather, 21 to 23. And so Paul's first assertion comes in verse 18. And it is simply this, wisdom comes from God and from his word. Wisdom comes from God and from his word. In verse 18, Paul writes, let no one deceive himself. Stop fooling yourself. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, that is, in this world, let him become a fool. Why? That he may become wise. What does that mean? Become a fool so that I may become wise. So first of all, Paul says, you know what? Quit fooling yourself into thinking that you are so wise. See, that was the problem with the church in Corinth. They were a bunch of know-it-alls. Paul, we've already figured this out. We know how to do this. We don't need to hear from you because we are a smart bunch. Never mind all the problems that they are experiencing in the church of Corinth, and yet they can't figure out how to resolve these problems because they were arrogant. And they thought they were so wise in their own eyes. And yet Paul wants to tell them that those who are truly wise in this world must become fools. What does he mean by that? Well, he's already addressed that really back in 1 Corinthians 1, to 25. Paul says, for the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, the things that the world thinks or would call wisdom, God says it's foolishness. And the things that God says is true wisdom, the world says that is foolishness. The fact that we believe that there is one God who exists in three persons, And this one almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God spoke everything into existence simply by the power of his word. Creates two people who take a bite of a fruit and because they took a bite of a fruit, All of humanity unravels and plummets into chaos. 
And so this almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, sovereign God becomes human. And he becomes an infant. He's born in Bethlehem. And he grows. And then he allows himself to be flogged and persecuted and crucified and then raises himself from the dead three days later And all of that is done so that we might have eternal life. Now, what I just said, probably 98% of the world would look at me and go, really? You can't really believe that. That is the most insane, idiotic thing I've ever heard. How can you possibly believe that? Because to the world, the wisdom of God is foolishness. But the vice versa is also true. That is, to God, the wisdom of the world is truly foolishness. Because what the Bible tells us in Proverbs 1, 7 is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want true wisdom, if you want to be a truly wise person, If you want to truly make wise decisions, particularly in terms of relationships, how do I deal with my spouse? How do I deal with my children? How do I deal with my friends? How do I deal with my neighbors? How do I deal with my church? How do I deal with my coworkers? Because, you know, that's the bulk of our struggle in life. You realize that? The vast majority of the things that people struggle with in this world have to do with relationships. Not finances, not jobs, relationships. Because oftentimes, even those other issues are related to relationship. People battle in marriage about how to spend their money. People seek other jobs because they can't stand the people they're working for. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be a wise person, fear God. Read his word. Seek to slavishly follow it. See that statement right there, the world hears me say something like that. Slavishly follow the word of God? Yes. Because this is real Wisdom. This is real life. This is where true life comes from. And that is not just a matter of opinion. There is objective, empirical evidence to support what I've just said. For example, you hear it said quite often, you know, it's sad that Christians, according to surveys, divorce at roughly the same rate as the rest of the world does. Some of you have probably heard that sort of statistics, right? It's misleading. It's the kind of statistic that the world loves to publish because it just shows there's really nothing to this Christianity stuff. However, if you look at more objective research that has been done, and I'll cite you one, according to the study of the University of Virginia and the National Marriage Project, And I quote, active conservative 
Protestants who regularly attend church are 35% less likely to divorce compared to those who have no affiliation. It's true. That is, when they did their survey, they asked a series of questions first. How committed are you to your faith? How often do you attend church? How often do you attend a weekly study? How often do you read your Bible? And what they discovered, that those who are serious about their faith, who read their Bibles daily, who go to church weekly, the percentage of divorce was significantly less than everybody else. Sadly, they also discovered that Christians who nominally attended church, Christians who nominally attended Protestant churches are 20%, listen to this, more likely to divorce than the average American. That is, those who profess to be Christians but go to church, well, every now and then. I've got a Bible, I hardly read it. They are 20% more likely to divorce than the average American. Church unity and harmony can only exist when churches listen to the wisdom and the word of God. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. Church unity, church harmony can only exist when churches, when Christians, when believers who are sitting in the pew listen to the wisdom and the word of God. If you want to be a fool, is Paul's point. If you want to be a fool, then think yourself wise and ignore God's word. Listen to what the world has to say. Listen to what you're hearing on your podcast. Listen to what you're reading in your magazines or whatever the case may be, rather than listening to the word of God, reading it, taking it at face value, and living it out. Do that. Listen to the world instead of listening to the word of God. The Bible says you're a fool. But if you want to be wise, Paul says, then think yourself a fool and listen to the word of God. Listen to God's word. The second assertion that Paul makes in verses 19 and 20, the world's wisdom is nothing in comparison to God. The world's wisdom is nothing in comparison to God. He says in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly. So you see the four at the beginning of verse 19. So he makes an assertion in, verses, in verse 18. And so now in verse 19, he's going to make a second assertion in order to support the first one. Four. Here's the reason. Here's the reason I just said what I did in verse 18. For the wisdom of this world is folly with 
God. It is foolishness in comparison to God. It is foolishness in the eyes of God. And that is not just Paul's opinion. Even though Paul is an apostle and he speaks on the authority of Christ and therefore is not obligated to offer any support, he's got the stamp of approval by Christ himself. Nonetheless, Paul cites Scripture. And the first citation is from Job chapter 5, verse 13. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. Now in that passage in Job chapter 5, that is a, Paul is citing from a portion of a speech that has been given by Eliphaz beginning at the chapter 4. And you remember that Job has three friends who come to him and they are trying to give him comfort. Of course, they do a, a horrible job of it. But beginning in chapter 4 and running through to chapter 5, Eliphaz is attempting to tell Job, look, Job, I know you don't understand what you're going through. I know this doesn't make any sense to you, but let me give you some advice as to what I would do. And part of what he says there, beginning in verse 8 of Job chapter 5, he says, as for me, Job, if I was in your place, this is what I would do. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. You know, that really is good advice, right? Go to God, Job. Go to God, friends. Don't go to your friends. Don't go to your neighbors. Don't go to your favorite podcasts. Go to God. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth, and he sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted safely. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. And here's the quote. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. In other words, Job, he's telling Job, God is wiser than anyone who is out there. All of the people in the world who seem so wise, who seem like they know what they're doing, who seem like they have it all together, Eliphaz tells Job, that's a mistake. Because God catches the crafties, the crafty ones in their craftiness. God is far wiser than any of them, Job, and you ought to go to God. Paul then also cites Psalm 94. Psalm 94 is an anonymous psalm and the psalmist writes this psalm in order to bring encouragement to the people of Israel who are suffering under their surrounding enemies. He wants to give them hope, or God, I should say, wants to give his people hope through the prophet who pens Psalm 94. You see that in the opening lines. 
O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve, O Lord. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evil doers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. So you hear the psalmist crying out to God, when will you avenge your people? Skipping down to verse 8, he then says, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? So listen, God is talking to all of those who do not heed the word of God. Fools, when will you be wise? When will you quit trying to solve your own problems. Verse 9, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? In other words, is God an invalid? Can God not fix things? Does God not have the answer? Does God not see what you're going through? He who disciplines the nation, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, here's the quote, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. They are but a breath. Paul says the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Same concept. They are but a breath, fleeting, passing. The wisdom of the world is nothing to God. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, you need to go to God. Stop listening to the world. Stop listening to your own rationale, to your own reason, to the thoughts inside your head, and instead listen to the word of God. Paul's point, quite simply, is that the wisdom of this world cannot outsmart God. Now Paul makes his conclusion. And the conclusion that Paul draws in verses 21 to 23 is simply this. It is foolish to boast in the people of this world or the things of this world or the wisdom of this world because it all belongs to God's people. This world, this universe, all belongs to God's people. In other words, it's already yours. Stop thinking that God is somehow withholding something from you if you follow his word because you already have everything in God. You're not missing anything You're not lacking anything. God is not withholding anything from his people because it already all belongs to you. Look at what he says in verse 21. So let the one, so let no one boast in men. In other words, in light of the two assertions that Paul makes, let nobody boast in 
men, in the wisdom of men. Paul is reminding them and hearkening back to how he started this entire book. Remember chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, they're all taking their positions. I follow this guy. He's the one I listen to. I'm going to take Peter's advice over Paul. I'm going to take Apollos' advice over Peter. He reminds them of that again in chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Like, who are we? We are simply servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul wants them to understand, look, me and Apollos, we're just tools. We're just instruments. Don't don't follow me. Don't be a disciple of Paul or a follower. Be a follower of Christ. Be a follower of God. Stop deriving your wisdom and pride from your favorite people. We still have that problem in the church today, right? This is not just a first century problem. This is a 21st century problem, right? Because everybody knows if you are in a theological debate with someone else over some fine theological point, the way to win the argument is to quote John Calvin. But Calvin said, ah, or Luther, or John Piper, or R.C. Sproul, or Tim Keller, or Jeff Durbin, and the names go on and on and on. Now, understand, everyone that I've just cited, I have a respect for. A very high respect for John Calvin, Martin Luther, Sproul in particular, but these are just men. They don't have all the answers. And I am not saying we ought not to read their books or listen to their sermons. God has given teachers to the church so that we might learn from them. It is to say that whatever we listen to that is coming from a man, listen, myself included, If you believe what you hear coming across this pulpit because it comes from me, you're a fool. Because everything that I say, everything that anyone says, always needs to be carefully measured against God's word. That's why I tell people when you come to church, bring a Bible. Don't just believe me. Look at it for yourself. Is he on the right track? Is this in context? Go home and study it for yourself. So this is the problem that the church in Corinth was having. They were following the wisdom of the world. They were following the wisdom of men. And in so doing... They are exchanging what they have 
the wisdom and the blessings of God for something less, the wisdom of men. And they are making things worse within the church. So then Paul goes on to say in our text, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. What does he mean by that? All your, Apollos is yours? Paul is yours? Cephas is yours? Everything is yours? What, what does Paul mean by that? Two things, I believe. The first is that all things are for your benefit. All things are for your benefit. I mean, Paul himself will go on to make the argument in chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, the apostles, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul is going to drive that home over and over again. Look, I, Paul the apostle, I'm just a servant. Peter is just a servant. We're just managers within the household of God. He'll tell the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he says this to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, it says, when he, referring to Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, what gifts did he give to men? What gifts did he give to the church? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are all gifts that are given to the church. The church does not exist for pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers exist for the church. Therefore, we don't become followers of men because they are given for our benefit. And then in Romans 8.28, that sort of sums up the rest of what Paul is saying, right? Romans 8.28, all things, God works all things for the good of those who love him. Everything, whether life or death, hence what Paul is talking about, present or future, present events, future events are all for your benefit. All things are for you. All things are yours. The second thing I believe Paul means when he says all things are yours is that all things already belong to the church because the church belongs to Christ. Christ belongs to God and God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in this universe rightly belongs to God. And Christ belongs to God the Father. And we belong to Christ because we are in union with Christ. Thus, someday we are going to inherit 
everything on this planet, everything in this universe will all be ours. You realize that, that as believers, we are really just leasing this planet to the unbelieving world. This is really ours. But our Heavenly Father is letting you live here for a time. But someday it will rightly become ours. We will inherit everything on this planet. We will inherit all of Christ in all of His fullness, in all of His glory. God will not withhold anything good from His people. Those who boast in men or those who boast in worldly wisdom are foolish because to do so is to be satisfied with lesser things. To boast in the things of this world, to boast in worldly wisdom, to boast in the people of this world is to be satisfied with lesser things when the entire world belongs to you. When we boast in men, or in the things of this world, or in this world's wisdom, when we follow the wisdom of this world, when we follow the teachings of men, rather than slavishly hold to the word of God, listen, my friends, you end up exchanging what you have, the blessings and the wisdom of God. You end up exchanging, like Adam and Eve, you end up exchanging what you have for something less, and you make things worse. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, it is so easy to look down our noses at Adam and Eve and ask ourselves, what were they thinking? While at the same time committing the exact same sin in our own lives, time after time after time. Listening to the words of the serpent, listening to the words of our own sinful flesh, listening to the wisdom of the world rather than listening to you, rather than listening to your word, rather than living out your word and engaging the world and engaging those around us in the way in which Scripture commands. Because so often, we won't admit it, but we think we are so much smarter than you. Father, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that you would cause us to seek wisdom in your word and to live it out for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. I pray these things in Christ's name.